The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. It's Black History Month, and that gives us an excuse to talk with Gary Young about Barack Obama and his new memoir, A Promised Land. But first, 800 people stormed the Capitol building on January 6th, aiming to overturn the results of the presidential election. Five people died, including one Capitol police officer. Many more were injured. As of today, we're taping this on Tuesday, 182 of the 800 have been charged with crimes. Why so few? For comment, we turn to Eli Mistal. He's the nation's justice correspondent. He writes the magazine's monthly column, Objection. He's also an Alfred Nobler Fellow at the Type Media Center. He's written for the New York Times and the New York Daily News. And he's a frequent guest on MSNBC. He's also great on Twitter. Ellie, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, John. Well, USA Today has been posting photos and information about every person arrested and charged for federal crimes on January 6th. Uh, Their pages show that more than 600, about 80%, do not appear there. 80% of the insurrectionists have not been charged. But didn't every one of them commit a crime? Every single person who breached the Capitol is guilty of a criminal offense, of a federal criminal offense. Now we can debate, we can talk kind of theoretically nation of laws stuff about what should happen to people like Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz or even Donald Trump, the people who incited to my view, this insurrection. But at a bare minimum, the 800 people who breached the Capitol committed a crime and must be arrested and charged with that crime, even if the crime is as simple as all of them committed criminal trespass, all of them committed disorderly conduct, all of them um, illegally went into a restricted area of a federal building, all of them at the least need to be charged and prosecuted for that. What is clear is that the people who, you know, tried to overthrow the government violated some damn laws. <laughs> John, remember, I'm fundamental, I'm a liberal. I'm anti-carceral. I, you know, when I was a lawyer, I was a defense, you know, fundamentally a defense side lawyer, right? I I I I worry about over-prosecution. I worry about over-punishing um, people. So I want the Justice Department to do its due diligence and make sure that the people charged with the most serious crimes committed the most serious offenses. I, I, I'm, all, I'm all for that. I don't, I don't need the guy who just went along with the crowd. I don't need him 
in jail for 20 years on sedition and conspiracy. I don't think that that is justice. But it's also not justice for that guy to walk free. So let me ask you as a former defense practitioner about some of the defenses that have been put forward by some of the people who are have been charged with lesser offenses. There's uh, one of my favorites is the rabbi from Palm Harbor, Florida, who's been uh, uh, charged with the crimes you listed, knowingly entering a restricted building, disorderly conduct in a restricted building, violent entry on Capitol grounds. His defense attorneys say, quote, he just followed the crowd over to the Capitol, just intending to be nothing more than a spectator, and ended up going into the Capitol after it was opened up, close quote. He just followed the crowd. Does that work for black people? It doesn't work for any people, right? <laughs> like, what do you mean, ended up? How are you just going to end up inside the Capitol? Look, there were people who were just following the crowd who went to be spectators that stayed outside the building. I'm not calling for us to go round up and arrest all of those people who went to a protest, protested, stayed outside, didn't hurt nobody, didn't beat anybody, and didn't violate federal law. They have positions that I disagree with, but I don't think they should be arrested. This guy went inside the Capitol. You don't, that doesn't just happen. This guy made an active decision to take steps inside to a restricted area. Anybody who did that who was not protected by whether it's whiteness, whether it's MAGA-ness, anybody who did that that was not protected by what the Republican Party exists to protect would be arrested on the spot. John, it's important to understand that if this had been a predominantly black mob or predominantly brown mob, everybody who went into the Capitol, they wouldn't have been allowed to go home. The police would have brought paddy wagons, literally buses, you know, that, that remember everybody talks about the zip tie guy. The police would have had zip tie handcuffs on the scene and just rounded up people as they came out of the building. Like that, that is that is what would have happened to any other mob. So for this guy um, to say that he he should somehow avoid prosecution and accountability for his actions because he was just following along that that is not a valid legal defense well let me try another defense on you there's another guy a former marine from pennsylvania photos show him inside the capitol building grabbing a police officer and shoving him against the wall his defense is that he quote just got caught up in the moment close quote does that work for black people who grab and shove cops no, and quite frankly, there's there, there are very few black people who could grab and shove a cop caught up in the moment and live to tell about it, right? Because that's the other thing that we saw on the day of the riot, of the insurrection. We saw incredible permissiveness by law enforcement. One person was shot by law enforcement, shot and killed by law enforcement, but law enforcement did not open up a hail of gunfire. We didn't see the kind of... Uh, police brutality that we see at protests against police brutality brought to bear on this white insurrectionist mob. So the fact that this man was able to put his hands on a police officer and A, live, B, not be arrested on the spot, C, not get punched in the mouth on the spot, the fact that that was even allowed to happen is already 
an extreme example of white privilege. For him to think that now he can roll that forward to escape prosecution after the fact for his crime is just, it's again, it's a, ridic it's a ridiculous argument um, that should not, and I don't believe will, hold up in any reasonable court of law. The Washington Post reported recently that there's a debate going on inside the Justice Department about whether to charge people whose only crime, in quotation marks, was entering the Capitol building on January 6th. What's your opinion? Yeah, that, I don't like that argument at all. I, I can't accept that at all. Again, there, there's no, aside from the black-white thing, like literally aside from the fact that this would never happen, they would never be having these discussions um, if it was a predominantly black mob. There's there's also the simple issue here that the the, the why do we prosecute anybody, right? Like why do we like why do we have laws? Why do we have prosecutions? Why do we criminalize certain otherwise petty offenses like trespass, like um, breaking and entering, and, and, and that kind of stuff? These these uh, uh, crimes that are not you know rape, murder, robbery, that kind of stuff. Well, it's because we feel that letting people get away with these low level crimes is permissive. Of, of other more serious crimes, right? It's not It's not that we think that trespass is the most dangerous thing in the world, but we think that if we allow trespassers to trespass, well, then eventually some trespassers will rape, will murder, will steal, will, will arson or, or, or what have you, right? So the argument for not prosecuting these people really would have to be something along the lines of, their their crimes were not that important. Yes, they technically violated the law, but the substance of what they were doing is not that important. The substance of what these people were doing was trying to overthrow a free and fair election. The substance of what these people were trying to do was to make a person who lost the election the winner and the president of the United States. Like that was their plan. And while some of them executed that plan in the most violent manner. Everybody who executed that plan in an illegal manner must be held accountable and must be brought to justice. The FBI has been engaged in this massive nationwide project to identify the people who stormed the Capitol. They posted these pictures everywhere. They've received more than 200,000 tips from the public, really very inspiring about who participated in the insurrection. The FBI has been studying hundreds of thousands of social media posts, hundreds of hours of news footage to try to identify these people. But you've suggested there was an easier way to identify the people who attacked the Capitol. Yeah, you just should have arrested them when they showed up. When these people left the building, that's when you should have arrested them. And then you wouldn't have needed this all, all these resources to for, for this manhunt. So while it's sad for them now that they have to spend all this time and money and effort finding these people, it's their own damn fault. Because they knew on the day of the riot that everybody who entered the building was a criminal. And they could have arrested them on the spot for that. Why do we ever have mass arrests? If not for a situation when there was a massive amount of people um, committing a clear violation of law. And again, this this is coming off the heels of our, our summer of protests where predominantly black and brown crowds were arrested en masse during largely peaceful protests because one guy 
through a brick or one guy broke a window and then they would round up a whole group of people. One person was standing someplace without a permit and they rounded up a whole group of people. So again, law enforcement knows how to do this when they want to. The issue at the Capitol riot was that law enforcement didn't want to on that day. Now they're now they're paying the price in resources and times for that failure. We're told by the Capitol Police Officers Union that about 140 police officers were injured by the mob that stormed the Capitol. Usually assaulting an officer is a big deal, especially a federal uh, officer. Sorry to bring this up, but how many cops were injured in the Black Lives Matter protests in Washington, D.C.? I think it was five. Right? This is, this is where, where are the thin blue line people now? A cop was murdered. Other, others were beaten. Many, many were seriously injured. Where, where are the people who claim to love the police now? Because if you love the police, if you believe in the thin blue line, if you believe that, that officers are entitled to our very highest levels of protection of the law, then how can you not be for arresting the people who threaten them? And that legal violation led to death and injury of police officers. There can be no question here. I hope Merrick Garland listens to this podcast. <laughs> Let's talk about Merrick Garland for a minute here. As we speak on Tuesday, he has not yet been confirmed as attorney general. As soon as he is, which we expect will be soon, he'll appoint a new U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, and he will then appoint the prosecutors for the January 6th cases. So we should wait and see what happens with these prosecutions. How do you feel about waiting? I mean, the only the only reason why I'm not jumping up and down on the Biden administration right now is that I respect and understand that he has not had, gee, Joe Biden has not had an opportunity to put his full legal team in place. Um, you, you say as soon as that he's confirmed. I mean, the Republicans are still playing games about having a Merrick Garland nomination hearing again. Like they're still they're still playing games with this. Um, so they're trying to delay that. As you say, the the current uh, U.S. attorney for the District of D.C., whose office will oversee this, he's an acting official appointed through the Trump regime, not from the Biden regime. So we'll have to wait for not only Garland and Biden to appoint a U.S. attorney to D.C., but also uh, to have that D.C. attorney confirmed by, again, the Senate, which is playing games. So there's a lot of uh, superstructure that needs infrastructure, if you will, that needs to be put in place before it can really be said to be Biden's Justice Department. In terms of how I feel about waiting, you know, uh, again, maybe it's the liberal in me, but like I, I, I'm, I'm willing to give some time for the legal process to play out. I am not. I, I do not like being quick to prosecute, um, quick to judge. Certainly, I'm a columnist, but quick to prosecute, a little different, right? I'm, I'm willing to take time and let the legal process play out. Check in with me next year. By this time next year, all 800 people should have been charged and gone through some legal adjudication. If they haven't, if we're sitting here next year and there's still 600 people have never been charged, then we're going to have a whole different problem. But I'm willing to give Biden some time to get his people in place and for prosecutors who are willing to do the right thing to have the time to do the right thing. Last question. How confident are you that Merrick Garland will do the right thing? Uh, why you got to ask me that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, he, look, all right. 
let's let's try to be let's try to be pod 2021 new year new me he has merrick garland has a good record of prosecuting white domestic terrorists i mean literally he is famous for prosecuting timothy mcveigh the oklahoma city bomber so let's hope that he draws upon that prosecutorial experience and brings it to bear in this context i think merrick garland as a judge gives me a little bit of concern because he was a very centrist judge he was a very pro law enforcement judge i have some concerns about his legal opinions but when he was a prosecutor i mean that's that was merrick garland as a judge when merrick garland was a prosecutor merrick garland did the right thing in terms of hunting down white domestic terrorists on our own soil let's hope that he is willing to do that again let's hope Ellie Mistal wrote about prosecuting the insurrectionists for thenation.com. Ellie, thanks for talking with us today. Great having you on the show. Thank you so much, John. You have a nice one. It's Black History Month, which gives us a good reason to talk with Gary Young about Barack Obama and his memoir, A Promised Land. It's been number one on the bestseller list for at least 10 weeks. Gary, of course, is an award-winning former columnist for The Nation. Now he's professor of sociology at the University of Manchester, a member of The Nation's editorial board, and a fellow of the Type Media Center. His books include the unforgettable one, Another Day in the Death of America. We reached him today at home in London. Hi, Gary. Hi, Jim. Well, Obama is a gifted writer. This is something we've known ever since Dreams from My Father many years ago. In this one, he's especially good about his family and what you call small but touching moments. Do you have a favorite? There's some tough and there's some tender that they... Um... The the tender is the morning that he he's woken up to hear that he gets the Nobel Peace Prize. And Michelle's like, "Who's that?" And he says, "I I won a Nobel Prize, honey." And she says, "That's nice." And then she just turns over and goes back to bed. <laughs> and um, and either Malia or Sasha, I'm not sure which one kind of grills him at breakfast about saving some species or other. Like, you should really get on that, Dad. And you get a sense of a kind of highly functional, quite playful family. But then Michelle really doesn't pull her punches. And there's a there's a moment where when he's planning to run for the president and the gendering of the kind of politics in this are quite interesting because she's literally left holding the babies and he goes from venture to venture uh, failed congressional bid, the state senate. He's off in um, Springfield. He's at the state capitol all the time. And um, then he decides to run for senate. And then, you know, and they're just getting settled. He's been there just a couple of years. And then, you know, he just sort of mentions, and of course she knows, and she says, God, Barack, when will it ever be enough? It's like you have a hole to fill. And it actually makes you like them both more, really. It's real, um, uh, it's really candid. And it kind of made me want to read her book. I understand you taught a course on Obama and the media uh, shortly after his inauguration in Brooklyn. How did that go? Not well. It was called Reporting Obama. And the idea was, you know, how 
is he understood? How is he um, uh, engaged? How do the foreign media report him? How do they do race? How do they do gender? This course started two weeks after the inauguration, 2009. They wouldn't critique him. Maybe they couldn't critique him. After Obama decided to put more troops in Afghanistan, the front of time or Newsweek was Obama's war. And uh, one of the students brought it in that week, it was out that week, and said, how would we understand this? And I said, well, in two ways. First of all, there's the war he didn't support, Iraq, and there's a war he did support, Afghanistan. And secondly, now he's escalating the troops. He's taking ownership of this war. And I heard a kind of kind of bullshit, you know, from the back of the class. And I, and I said, you know, sorry. And um, this woman said, you can't, you can't pin that on him. And I said, I'm not trying to pin anything on him. We're trying to discuss and describe and understand. And she, she said, you don't know what's in his heart. And I said, well, unless you're a cardiologist, you don't know what's in his heart either. <laughs> We're not talking about what's in his heart. We're talking about what he's doing. And I found this generally among liberals, white liberals. African-Americans, it was slightly different. African-Americans, I felt it was like, look, he's no worse than anybody else. And he's a hell of a lot better than Bush. So just leave him alone. Like, we're not going there. Like, we never said he was Superman. Let him just be an average president. That will be fine. And, you know, shut up by the way, whereas with particularly white liberals, there was a kind of like, there's been a real reluctance to critique him. And that's partly, that's partly understandable because of what he comes in after with regard to Bush and what, and what follows him with regard to Trump that kind of, you know, he's a man who could tie his own shoelaces and speak in full sentences who doesn't do policy on Twitter, is worldly and cosmopolitan and empathic. There is an element with him and Michelle and the kids of kind of Camelot without the castle. It's a kind of, you know, he embodies a kind of, uh, almost literally embodies and personifies a, a place the country might go. So, you know, if he kills a bunch of people with drone strike, well who are we to judge kind of thing and i think and i think the best thing is to, to understand him as the president and to critique him not necessarily just criticize him as the president and i i think there's a significant portion of the world actually that don't want to do that there is that fascinating moment which he writes about when Henry Louis Gates, Harvard professor, is arrested for breaking into his own house. And Obama remarks that that was a stupid thing for the police to do. And he notes in his book that this was the moment that where he suffered his greatest drop, his biggest drop in approval ratings of his entire career. And it never went back up after that. I mean, it's kind of mind-boggling that that one word, that this was a stupid thing to do, which, of course, was a pretty stupid thing to do, that that would be this breaking point for a lot of white people in America. Uh, and he seems kind of a little surprised by that, too, actually, that this would this would be a kind of turning point in his approval ratings. Well, yeah, I mean, you you get a sense, I got a sense reading the book, that he is always 
kind of watching himself watch himself. He's about three people removed. And this is a moment, I think, where he loses that sense of detachment and says something obvious, which he suddenly finds out isn't obvious to everybody. I mean, it's worth pointing out that black the Black Lives Matter movement happens under Obama's watch. Yes. And that people... And it it explodes almost without reference to him. That when people talk about him as president, they don't talk about how he handled it or what, you know, it's kind of like it was almost on a split screen. And here I'm talking about anti-racism, African-Americans and so on. He had learned how to navigate a certain kind of American racism. And I've always believed that part of that ability was, first of all, the fact that he grew up around white people. And secondly, that he wasn't African-American. He's black American, but he's not um, African-American. You could say he was Kenyan American, if you like, but um, he's not the descendant of slaves, maybe the descendant of slave owners from his mum's side, but he's not a descendant of slaves. And he didn't, have either that's that story if you look at one of the things i used to do in reporting obama that course you mentioned was compare jesse jackson's um convention speech in 88 to obama's in 2004 just to look at the difference that jesse jackson um he talked about kind of um we all came over in the same boat. Some of us were in the bottom, some of us were in the top. Growing up in South Carolina, his mum bringing home the scraps from white people. And the stuff he said was true and searing, and he said it brilliantly. And one of the effects is that it made a bunch of white people feel bad. And mm-hmm. and uh, they're like, well, come on, I don't, want, I don't want to hear about that. Um, whereas Obama could say, you know, my father came to America, a magical place. Mm. It was 1959. It was like, you know, five years before Chanish Freddie and Goodman were killed in Mississippi, before Birmingham. But he had access, uh, as does Kamala Harris, actually, to uh, a way of being black in America that didn't necessarily have to evoke its most painful moments. Yeah. you know, you work with the story you've got, and he worked with it very, very well. But it was treacherous. What we saw with the the incident with Henry Louis Gates Jr. was the the degree of treachery and the degree to which he was walking a tightrope the whole time. Yeah. You mentioned that Black Lives Matter began under Obama, of course, with the killing of Trayvon Martin in Florida, and Obama had that remarkable sentence: "If I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon." I mean, that was something I never imagined he would say anything like that. And and interestingly, he kind of, it seemed that he did manage to get away with that. Yeah. I want to ask you, John, did you you enjoy the book? Well, I was frustrated because, like you, I think we should evaluate him as a president. And, you know, we progressives were very, to put it mildly, disappointed. My picture of him had been, community organizer on the south side of Chicago who then went to Harvard Law to sharpen his, uh, you know, tools. And and part of the book, of course, is he knows, he's a smart guy, he knows how he disappointed progressives. And a lot of the book is kind of explaining, answering our 
criticisms of him, which, of course, began on almost the first day of his presidency when he brought in all those Goldman Sachs people to solve the biggest economic crisis since, since the 30s. Now, everybody today, it's being dis- discussed right now, this week in Congress, because all Democrats now think what Obama did was too small, wasn't enough, gave too much to Wall Street, gave too much to Republicans. What does he say in defense of, of that uh, to people like us? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can see in the book that we're in his head, you know, that some of those criticisms got through because he's often trying to triangulate his assessment of what he did. I mean, I was intrigued with the stimulus package being a very good example. He's told you need a trillion dollars. Ram tells him you can't have anything with a T in it. <laughs> and so he doesn't push back and say, yeah. but that's what we need. And if we don't get that, then blah, blah, blah. He says, well, how much can we have? Or, you know, how much can we get away with? He then goes in search of Republicans to negotiate with and can't find any. And so, and I feel that this happened a lot, that he would end up negotiating with himself first then seeking goodwill that was never there, and then ultimately producing something that absolutely nobody was particularly happy with. And and, and a significant amount of cynicism came out of that, I think, uh, and a kind of curdling, a curdling of the, you know, hopey, changey kind of message. But I also, did you not just think it was too long? <laughs> and it only covered it didn't cover the whole term i mean he's this is only the first of two volumes so there's 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 more to come but he has you know he wants Nelson us to- mandela's long walk to freedom was 617 pages it covers his whole life and it's a pretty eventful <laughs> life i mean you can say well fair enough there's a big chunk of it where he's in jail he doesn't do that much but like i mean still uh this is the th- kind of third volume already yeah of Obama's life, and it's 83 pages longer than Nelson Mandela's whole life. (laughs) To me, the other weakness is the task he gives himself is to explain to us what it was like to be in the moment when he was trying to come up with Obamacare, rather than what, you know, what we would like is looking back on it from the perspective of today when we can see that the question is, could you have done more? You should have done more. Could you have done more? He doesn't really go there very often. Once in a while, he will say something like, I might have been bolder. But that's not the kind of book this is. This is a take us back to the moment. And it takes him a long time to explain what that moment was like for all these different moments. Yeah, I, I was struck by his account of meeting with Wall Street executives where he talks about kind of ripping into them for their lack of restraint. And he says they left feeling really anti-business. And then you read Ron Suskin's account in The Confidence Man, where one of the participants, one of the businessmen, the you know bank executive says, the sentiment of everyone at the meeting was relief. <laughs> President had us at a moment of real vulnerability, and at that point, he could have he could have ordered us to do just about anything, and we would have rolled over. But he didn't. He mostly wanted to help us out and to quell the mob. You know, Obama's sense of being tough on powerful people is I don't know. And um, 
you do get a sense. I I got a real sense of a missed opportunity. You know, two years after he won, there was a tea party, and uh, he got a shellacking. And of course, the other thing we're thinking about throughout the whole book is Donald Trump is waiting in the wings, thinking about could he be president, and it, it's fascinating. I I don't think I barely knew who Donald Trump was when uh, when Obama was elected. He doesn't appear in the book really until almost at the end. There's this fascinating episode. It's during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in in the Gulf when Trump calls the White House and suggests he should be put in charge of plugging the hole in the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico <laughs> and to stop the leak. And uh, Obama writes that, well, he, we explained to him that, you know, we had competent people who were doing this. Then Trump offered to build a beautiful ballroom on the White House grounds. Obama says he politely declined. And then like six months later, Trump is starting with the birther lie. It does make you wonder, <laughs> maybe he made the wrong move on the ballroom there. What do you think? <laughs> The bit I was really struck by, um, because my, my son was born the weekend that Obama announced. As I'd been pushing him around in his stroller, people would talk about, like, this is going to be a really wonderful thing if Obama wins for your son. And I would say, why? <laughs> because I, I really did get tired of the, the, the there was a flakiness about the racial evocation. You know, when people say it'd be great if we had a black president, and I would say, what, what if it was Condoleezza Rice? And um, generally speaking, did not go down well when I would say why. And, and I would say to them, look, if they can reduce his chance of going to jail and increase his chance of going to university, then great. There's more chance in this country that my kid will go to jail than he'll be president. So the fact that the one person gets to be president, that's nice for him. I understand it symbolically, but substantially. And there is this bit at the end, which is, uh, once again, kind of quite candid, where he's in Brazil and he waves at a group of kids in a favela, many of whom are black, and Valerie Jarrett says, she says, I bet that will change their lives forever. And he says... I wonder if that were true. However much it might cause them to stand straighter and dream bigger, it couldn't compensate for the grinding poverty they encountered every day. By my own estimation, my impact on the lives of poor children and their families so far had been negligible, even in my own country, which I was actually grateful for him staying. And it's, it is true that he comes in with the country in a massive slump and... Um, Axelrod says to him, when things are bad, people don't care that it could be worse. There is that. There is that to remember. But that you get a sense of, of the symbolic nature of what went on. But you also get a sense which kind of, you know, I did, I finished the book thinking, you're a bit more boring than I would have liked. Like, because he just went on. Well, just because he just went on and on and yeah. on. But that it seemed like an honest attempt to engage with what he had or or hadn't done. Even if at times I felt it was inadequate, well, he's a human being in himself and and all of that, so I'd, I wouldn't damn him for that. But that he did at least try 
to critique his record, which in itself I think is probably a rare thing for a presidential autobiography. I mean, I can't wait to see Trump's autobiography. <laughs> Gary Young, he wrote about Obama's memoir, A Promised Land, for The Guardian. Thank you, Gary. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Finally, we want to remember Rennie Davis. He died on February 2nd at his home outside Boulder, Colorado. He was 80. He was probably the New Left's most talented organizer, starting out as a community organizer in Chicago with SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, in the mid-60s. And then he became one of the leaders of the anti-war movement with the National Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam. In 1967, at the height of the Vietnam War, Rennie, along with Tom Hayden, became some of the first Americans to travel to Hanoi. They returned in time for the March on the Pentagon. Then they set out to organize a massive anti-war protest at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. He hoped for hundreds of thousands of protesters, but only 10 or 15,000 people showed up after Chicago's Mayor Daley made it clear that the Chicago police would do everything they could to stop the marchers. And indeed, what happened there was later called a police riot by the commission that investigated it. Rennie and seven other protest leaders were then charged with federal crimes by the new Nixon administration and put on trial in Chicago. Those events are back with us this season in the film Trial of the Chicago 7, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. It's been playing on Netflix since October and is now winning many award nominations. Rennie and his friends criticized his portrayal in the film as a nerdy guy concerned mostly with not offending his girlfriend's conservative parents. He said, quote, I feel sorry for Tony Award winner Alex Sharp, who played me, close quote. But he nevertheless urged people to see the film because its theme was the value of protest and the necessity of speaking truth to power. In the trial, five of the defendants were convicted of inciting a riot and sentenced to five years in prison. The verdicts were overturned on appeal. After that, Rennie went on to organize a much bigger and more amazing anti-war protest, although it's much less known, the May Day protests in Washington, D.C. in 1971. The slogan was, Stop the War or We'll Stop the Government. After mass civil disobedience there, more than 12,000 people were arrested. It was the largest mass arrest in American history. After that, Rennie went in a puzzling direction. Briefly, he became a follower of an Indian boy guru. But for the last few years, he's been working on creating a network of intentional communities in response to climate change. I spoke with Rennie a couple of months ago for a Nation magazine event, and he talked about his trip to North Vietnam in 1967. I was in a bomb shelter in North Vietnam where, where we were in utter blackness while we could hear American you know, bombs going off in Hanoi, okay, and basically they were trying to you know, our Vietnamese hosts were trying to, you know, I guess entertain us or something. So they read news accounts, and and in that in the news accounts of one day, 
they they announced that uh, the Democratic Party was holding its convention in Chicago. And they said, "Oh, aren't you from Chicago?" <laughs> so so that's actually it was there that I learned about the the Democratic convention. It was there that I made the decision. I am going to Chicago. Rennie Davis on this show last September. He died on February second. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at HereYouAreAZ.com.